Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Saturday Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with apologist William Hemsworth on the Four Persons Network. William is passionate about teaching the faith. He is a convert that attended a Baptist seminary. He is a father and a catechist that will encourage you to live the faith, evangelize, and defend it. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. Once again, the phone number to call into the show is 515-602-9655. Hey, hello everyone. William Hemsworth here. Hope everyone is having a great day. Hope everyone has had a great week. And welcome to the Burnt Toast and Coffee Show here on the Four Persons Network. And please, um, the work of this apostolate, is really growing um, a lot of good work is going on here and there's a lot of great people working together in the name of our lord jesus christ and his church to make it happen so if you are able please pray and maybe and please consider uh donating to the work of the apostolate because i promise you it will be money well spent well used and you get a tax deduction for it so it's kind of a win-win we spread the gospel you pay less to uncle sam right all right, so again, welcome to Burnt Toast and Coffee here on a Saturday morning. Uh, today's episode, we're going to discuss the four marks of the church. We're kind of getting back to basics a little bit this week, and I think it's important just based on some things I've seen online over the past few weeks, uh, basic understanding of ecclesiology or what's known as theology of the church and what those four marks are, even though we say them every week in the creed. But before we get to that, I wanted to share some personal news with you. And I mentioned this briefly a couple weeks ago. Um, So I I asked for your prayers. Um, October 23rd, I will be undergoing a knee replacement surgery. Um, I'm excited for it. Obviously a little nervous. It's a major surgery. But kind of the background, my knee has not been in good shape since I was 19 years old. I'm 43 years old now. Uh, when I was 19, I blew my knee out for the first time, tore the ACL and meniscus, had it rebuilt. A year later, was training to deploy to Iraq and tore the ACL and meniscus again. Um, was medically discharged from the military in 2004 because of knee issues. My knee just couldn't handle the military grind anymore, unfortunately. 
because I really enjoyed my work as a chaplain's assistant there. Really thought it was my calling. God had other plans, you know, and that's great. We don't know his plans, but he does. And we just have to pray and roll with the punches sometimes. Um, after I got out of the military, I had two more surgeries. And I don't talk about this a lot, but really, over the last couple years, I've been walking around with a torn ECL for a third time because over time, those replacements just wear out and two torn meniscus, so one on each side of the knee. So walking around with three torn ligaments, essentially, in my knee. And as you can imagine, it can be very painful because the ACE, you know, the ACL helps keep your uh, tibia from moving forward. It helps set your knee properly. Um, so I would say over the past couple years, um, well, over the past year, my pain level has gone from maybe a seven to about a nine. And I'm a teacher, and so I stand up all day long so I can walk around and help my students. Um, so I'm very excited about the surgery. So I ask that you keep me in your prayers. Um, I'm going to have to take a minimum of three weeks off work, which is in the middle of basketball season when this happens. And I'm also the head basketball coach. So um, I'm going to be missing uh, quite a bit. Now, I have no doubt things are going to work out. They're, everything's going to be fine. But I still ask for your prayers in this process, prayers for my students, um, prayers for my family, because it's going to be it's going to be a lot of work, physical therapy-wise. Um, my wife's going to have to help me with some stuff, and my parents are going to be coming over while my wife has to go to work to make sure that I'm able to get around in those first couple weeks and go where I need to go. So please pray for me. praying for you as well. But that's a little personal news there. Um, but with this surgery coming up, I also teach RCIC, my parish, and First Communion. So far, no one has registered for RCIC, which is the Rite of Christian Initiation for Children. Um, but I have to make that decision if I'm going to teach the first semester of First Communion classes because I'm potentially missing um, a month, maybe two months, depending on what the doc does. So these are some things that I am wrestling with, some things I'm praying about. Um, and please pray for me on that front as well. Okay. So that's my personal news for today. So uh, the four marks of the church, why are they important? So for those that don't know, the four marks of the church, we recite them every week during the Nicene Creed. But a lot of times we just don't know what they are. Okay, we just don't know what they are. And these are they're essential to the church um, because it is Christ through the Holy Spirit that makes this church one, holy, Catholic and apostolic, and it is he who calls her to realize each of these qualities, and that's from the Catechism in paragraph 811. It's important for us Catholics to know and understand these attributes to help us define the heart and mission of the church. And in extension, when we live these marks, it helps us um, realize our vocation in the church, maybe what we're called to do in the church, because all of us as baptized Catholics are called to a vocation in the church. It doesn't mean we're called to be, uh, doesn't mean we're necessarily called to be like, you know, rel religious or uh, 
priest, although some of us definitely are, but each of us have something that we can share with the church, whether it's uh, teaching, uh, religious education, maybe administration, uh, volunteering, you know, just upkeep of the parish, whatever the case is, all of us have a role to play in the church. And unfortunately, I think we get in this attitude sometimes where we think, um, well, someone else is going to do it. And then sometimes, and I've seen this happen quite a bit, and then we get upset that things don't happen, maybe certain programs don't happen, because there's really just not enough volunteers. I mean, I can only speak for myself. I mean, at my parish, it seems to be the same 20, 25 people that are involved in every ministry, and that's going to lead to burnout and all this other stuff. So, like, we all need to step up. Now, I'm not saying we all have, I mean, we have jobs, we got to provide for our families. Our families are our first vocation. Don't get me wrong. That's definitely what our Lord Jesus tells us to do is take care of our families. But we're also called to take care of our parish family as well. And there's something we can do, whether it's being an usher, okay, just something that we could do to help support our parishes. So let's go ahead and dive into these four marks of the church because they are very important. And I think sometimes we lose track of it. But I'm going I'm to start off talking about ecclesiology. All right, so ecclesiology is the branch of theology that deals with the study of the church. And it's a very, I don't know, I'm just a theology nerd, I guess. For me, it's a very fascinating area of uh, theology, especially when compared with our uh, Protestant brethren. All right. Because they'll say that the the church is uh, invisible, that it's made up of the body and believers. And, you know, to a certain extent, that's true. But Jesus did establish a church, okay? And he said, you know, um, I forget where it was exactly in the Gospel of Matthew. But he says, if there's an issue with your brother, go to him. If there's an issue, take someone else. And if there's still an issue, take it to the church. So there is this visible entity around because jesus says you got to go there it's not just invisible guy invisible structure where you're going to take your problems to and so we take it to the church it's visible the church decides on matters of faith where there's issues and that's where all the ecumenical councils and the magisterium comes in but let's get to the greek word here of ecclesiology ecclesia all right greek word um some translate it to church um some translate it to the assembly Either way, it kind of means the same thing. We're assembling to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So the church proclaims the gospel of Jesus and spreads his message across the world to all people. And so the task of the church is to be a beacon of hope and teach all who enter through her doors the ways of salvation. The church finds its foundation from Christ in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says, and I say unto thee, and I'm reading from the Douay Reims here, and I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. St. Paul continues this and calls the church the bulwark and pillar of truth in 1 Timothy 3.15. <clears throat> and my apology, friends, I'm dealing with some allergies. We've had a lot of rain here in Tucson the last couple days. Thanks be to God for that. But it brings allergies here. And so the church is categorized by the four marks which is 
that the church is one. The church is holy. The church is Catholic, and the church is apostolic. So the first mark of the church is that it is one. One is more than a number. One is a number that conveys unity. This unity comes from the church's source, which is the eternal Godhead itself. And we see this where the catechism says, quote, the highest exemplar and source of this mystery is the unity in the trinity of persons of one God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that disagreements don't exist. Okay. Every family has disagreements. It does mean that doctrinally we have a united front. So within the church, there are many gifts and charisms that people have. Unity is a beautiful thing. One person may be good at administration, another in teaching, and yet another may, may have the gift of speaking in tongues, for example. Because we believe as Catholics that that is a spiritual gift that still exists. We're not cessationists where all those gifts died with the last apostle, like some of our Protestant friends believe. Okay? All right. In this way, the church has a valuable lesson for society. Every gift that a person possesses is useful in building up the church. This is another, it's another way that the church is one. The individuals of the church come together to build each other up and proclaim the faith that was proclaimed by the apostles. The Vatican II document titled Lumen Gentium states in paragraph 4, quote, He leads the church in all truth, and he makes it one fellowship and ministry, instructing and directing it through a diversity of gifts, both hierarchical and charismatic, and he adorns it with his fruits, end quote. Second, the church is holy. The second mark of the church is that it is holy. The church is holy based on Jesus Christ, who is its founder. Because as Catholics, we can trace our lineage to Jesus Christ. Okay, we can't trace our lineage to, say, Chuck Smith, Chuck Smith founding Calvary Chapel in the 1970s. Or Martin Luther, Protestantism in 1517. Okay, etc. You know, things like that. You get my point. Jesus is the founder of the Catholic Church. And this can be seen in the salutation of St. Paul to the Corinthians, where he writes in 1 Corinthians 1-2, quote, To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, the Church is sanctified or made holy by its call and mission. It is made up of sinners who, by the grace of God, carry out the great commission of teaching and baptizing. The church is the bride of Christ, and just as a husband and wife are one flesh, so is the church. The church is holy because of its bridegroom. The Catechism says in paragraph 824, quote, United with Christ, the church is sanctified by him, through him, and with him. She becomes sanctified. The church acknowledges that the people within are not perfect. I mean, look around. And not just look around, but let's look at ourselves. We are not perfect. And there are scandals within the church. I mean, I was really angered, I'll say, when I read an article this week about a priest 
about a priest um, marrying an 18-year-old teen that he had taught for the last two years. So he was grooming this girl. And then he left a priesthood to marry her. Or a retired bishop. And I forget in which diocese, retired bishop, got married civilly because the Pope Francis wouldn't laicize him. So by no means are we perfect. We are not perfect in the slightest. We all need God's saving grace. Every single one of us. So like a loving mother, the church holds those souls closely and provides them the means to be saved. The church teaches the gospel. The church, through its liturgy and sacraments, provides the means of grace which Christ instituted fully and perfectly. The church is Catholic. Now, this is a Catholic apostolate. And so maybe you're listening and you're like, well, duh. But the third mark of the church is that it is Catholic, but it means so much more than like Roman Catholic, okay, the Roman Catholic Church. The word first came into use by St. Ignatius of Antioch in the second century. In his epistle to the Smyrnians, he writes, Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is. There is the Catholic Church. So, in using this word, St. Ignatius tells his readers that the Church is universal. It is a church not just for the Jews or the Gentiles, but it's for everyone. It is for everyone. It's for the rich. It's for the poor, the slave, the free. Because we are all children of God. The church teaches uh, the message of Christ to everyone. The church is also Catholic because the full deposit of faith which consists in sacred scripture and sacred tradition, were entrusted to her by Christ, by the apostles. Through these deposits, she can fulfill the final command that Christ laid out in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, which is the Great Commission. You know, go into all the world, teaching them everything I commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how does this relate to other ecclesial communities? So our Protestant friends, for example. The church is also Catholic because of its structure of bishops, priests, and deacons. Now, of course, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, has authority. And this is a big hurdle for our friends, right? But this doesn't mean that they're not Christians or not part of the universal church. And here's why I say that. By no means am I saying we shouldn't evangelize them, because we do, because they don't have the fullness of the truth. But for a vast majority of Protestants, their baptisms are valid. If they are baptized in the Trinitarian formula, whether they know it or not, they are just imperfect. They are like imperfectly united to the Catholic Church. Okay, because it's still a sacrament. The Church still recognizes its effects. They just may not realize that. But one day, even if it's after this life, they will. They're, in, they're an imperfect communion with the church that Christ established, okay? It's imperfect because it's not full communion. So even though they may have a valid baptism, okay, they can't have the Eucharist, for example, because our beliefs about the Eucharist are two totally different things. 
All right. So my ba- I have a good friend of mine. He's a Baptist pastor. And for them, when they have communion, the elements represent, they symbolize Christ's body and blood. But it's still a piece of bread. And in their case, it's still grape juice because they don't have wine. For us, we believe it's the body and blood of Christ at the moment of consecration. So for our non-Catholic friends, they are imperfectly they're in communion because if they come to Mass, they can't receive communion because they don't believe what we say it is. Okay? All right. The church is apostolic. So the church is apostolic because the apostles were given the authority from Christ to establish it. And the Catechism sums this up pretty nicely in paragraph 857, when it says, The church was built on the foundation of the apostles with the help of the Holy Spirit. The church keeps and hands on the teaching. She continues to be taught, sanctified, and guided by Christ through their successors. So the teaching office of the church consists of bishops in union with the Pope. This group of men have the great honor and it's, all, it's a great responsibility as well, of carrying on the teachings of the apostles. We call this the teaching office of the magisterium. Now, contrary to what some may think, Scripture is not self-interpreting. And let's be honest, and you see this on social media pages all the time. Interpretation can change based on one's presupposition. Okay. But the church is apostolic because the teaching office of the church, or the magisterium, is given the divine task to interpret Scripture. Now, this doesn't mean we can't read the Bible on our own. The church encourages us to read Scripture on our own. But if there's a question about what something means, we look to the church's guidance. The apostolicity of the church, we see again in Acts chapter 1, verses 25, I'm sorry, verses 24 through 25 which says, and they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And so here we see that the apostles replacing Judas. This is apostolic succession. This is a biblical proof for apostolic succession right here. And that succession, that apostolic succession continues today. History shows that the apostles appointed men who would take over their ministry. And in the Catholic Church, each of our bishops can trace their apostolic lineage back to one of the original 12. In St. Irenaeus in the 2nd century, he said that is the sign of the true church. All right. The true church can chase, trace its lineage back to the apostles directly. Now, from the four marks, we see the church's mission, uh, structure, and its establishment in scripture and tradition. Now, in addition to the four marks, the church has Marian and Petrine uh, charism, so from Mother Mary and from St. Peter. So, in the Petrine charism, we see the church linked with the apostles. Pope Francis is St. Peter's successor, and so thus the church today has that historical link to the apostles. Like I said before, each bishop can trace their ecclesial heritage to one of the twelve apostles. 
and history shows that there was an early understanding of papal primacy. Now, the Marian charism um, is no doubt a very significant area of disagreement with other, with our separated uh, friends, okay? Because Mary is the mother of Christ. The church is a mother to the faithful. Now, the catechism again, in, in uh, paragraph 829 says, the faithful still strive to conquer sin and increase in holiness. And so they turn their eyes to Mary. In her, the church is already all holy. Now, there are many sources in Scripture that allude to this influence. For example, John chapter 19, verses 26 through 27 says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Our Lord gave his mother to John. And he wouldn't have done this if he had brothers and sisters or if Mary had other children. It would have broken the law. And Jesus is perfect, never sinned. He wouldn't be breaking the law. So there's a biblical proof right there that Mary did not have other biological children. And there are a lot of Protestant commentaries that actually make that claim as well. I'll go over those, some of those in future episodes. So our Lord gave his mother to John in the same way he gives us Mary to be our spiritual mother. And so by teaching and administering the sacraments, the church acts in this motherly role for her children. All right. So just to conclude, and I know today's show is a little short, but this is just a back-to-basics episode. Okay, this is like Theology 101. This is a beginner's course in it. So in ecclesiology, we study the church and its doctrines. The four marks of the church make up the theological foundation that differentiate the church from other faiths. This is what this is one of the ways that the church shows that it is the true church. In John 17, Christ prayed for unity. But let's be honest, in Christianity that's hardly the case. Now, there's a statistic out there that says there's 40,000 different denominations. I'm just going to be honest, we need to stop saying that because it's false. Um, I know where that source came from and I read it, but it counted like, for example, each Baptist church in each country, they said like the English Catholic, the English Baptist church, the Nigerian Baptist church, it counted those as two separate denominations. Still, although it's not 40,000, the number is more likely like 9,000, but still that's 899, 800, 990, I'm sorry, let me try that again. 8,999 too many. So I'm just saying let's be accurate with our numbers. So Christianity is hardly unified. And non-Christians notice this. When I've gone out evangelizing, I mean, I've been flat up and asked, what makes your church different than the church down the street? They say they're the truth. You're saying you're the truth. Which one is it? You're both claiming to be Christian. You're saying you need baptism to be saved. They're saying you don't. 
Just a thought. All right. But we have the promise of Christ that the powers of evil, the gates of hell, if you will, will not overcome what he has established. So we should take great joy and courage that we participate in the church and its mission to the world. Like I said a few times already, the church can trace its lineage and doctrine to the beginnings of Christianity. Therefore, the church is not only the body of believers as Protestants believe, it is also a visible entity in which the faithful can go for comfort and guidance. So, my friends, um, John Banco and I, John, the founder of the Four Persons Network, uh, have been talking about doing a show on Melchizedek, and we'll get that date nailed down. But I also want to do a series on the Didache where I go verse by verse through that early catechism. And that ca that actually shows us a lot of Catholic teaching when it was written. And some say it was written as early as A.D. 70. All right, my friends, please pray for me. Like I said, I shared some personal news with you. I know this show is pretty short today. We're running at about 30 minutes. Um, but I just wanted to get back to basics a little bit with the four marks. And we'll get back at you next week. Um, I'll get with John about the Melchizedek show. But if we don't start that next week, I'll start with the Didache next week. Okay, my friends? All right. God bless you. And have a blessed day. Have a blessed week.